Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd was gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they'd handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they laid him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus 
the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. That's been a, a real privilege to sing with you this evening. Um, very evident that you, you want to be here to be remembering Jesus, to be offering him your love. Our, there are a lot of questions in our culture these days about identity. Um, a lot of folks a lot of us struggling to know what we should be thinking of ourselves or how to think of ourselves. Our culture is full on the one hand of people with, with a, a very low self-esteem. Uh, so if the statistics are right, countless people struggling with depression. Uh, sometimes that can tend towards uh, a level of hopelessness, suicidal feelings, uh, and tragically, uh, often suicidal actions. Uh, there are many factors we could point to about what it is. Why is it that people are, are feeling this way in our culture these days? Is it the feeling of being unwanted or, or unloved as a child in a broken or dysfunctional home? Is it the pressure 
on, on kids to succeed in school uh, and later on in, in careers? Is it just facing some sort of prejudice, uh, sexual prejudice, racial prejudice, something that people are against you? And that's before we even start to think about the dehumanizing effects of technology, uh, the, the effects of social media and its pressure is starting to exert on people. No wonder so many people today feel worthless. Lots of people in our culture today struggle with a, a low self-esteem. It's an irony that I don't quite understand how at the same time that that's going on in our culture, we've become one of the most self-obsessed cultures uh, imaginable. I don't know that any culture in the past has ever been so in love with the, the great big me. We, we talk about time now in a new way. It's like we need new kinds of diaries and calendars to, to make sure there's enough me time in there. Uh, our kids uh, seem to, to learn the anthems of the me culture just as naturally as they learn to walk or ride a bike. Think, think of the lyrics for a second of one of the big songs from last year's hit movie, The, the Greatest Showman. I know that I deserve your love because there's nothing I'm not worthy of. I make no apologies. This is me. A culture full of self-obsession. This, this problem of self-obsession isn't new. It's been around for some time. Uh, uh, came across this week a, a modern limerick that reminds us that the, the cult of self-obsession reaches back at least as far as Narcissus, who was made famous in the, the Greek uh, myth. There once was a nymph named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious. So he stared like a fool at his face in a pool and his folly today is still with us. We're in all sorts of trouble. People who think way, way too much of themselves many who think much too little, often with tragic consequences. And that brings us back to, to this question of our identity. Who am I? How should I think of myself? What attitude should I adopt towards myself? A Christian would say that you can't answer that question without a look at the cross of Jesus Christ. It calls for two balancing uh, attitudes, one of self-denial and one of self-affirmation. Before we talk in a moment about the self-denial and the self-affirmation, I want to, to expand with you for a second our view of what's happening on the cross on, on Good Friday. Many people here will understand, at least now when I say it, that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is substitutionary. I think you might understand that. So whenever we use the word substitute, if you watch a football match and a substitute comes onto the pitch to replace a player, the substitute comes on so that the other player doesn't have to play. The, the, the substitute plays so that the other player doesn't have to. And so it is with the cross of Jesus Christ. We say that he died on the cross for my sins so that I don't have to. That's the substitutionary nature of the death of Jesus. 
there's a, well, a less well-known part of the, the death of Jesus, and that's the representative nature of the death of Jesus. A representative, you see, is somebody who acts on our behalf in a way that doesn't leave us out of the transaction, keeps us involved in the action. So, for example, if I appoint an agent to represent my company, he doesn't go and speak instead of the company. He goes and speaks with the voice of the company, not rather than it. So whenever Jesus died as our representative, we died with him. It's like what Paul's been teaching us, those of us who have been here these spring Sunday mornings, and we've been learning from Colossians about what it means to be in Christ. Paul says that everything that's true of Jesus is true of us. We have died with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. If you're in Christ this evening, something of this Good Friday story has to be your story. As well as Jesus dying in your place, you somehow died with him. He is your representative. Folks, we need to stop thinking about the cross in terms of the death of Jesus, only in terms of the death that it saves us from, and start to think of it as well in terms of the life that it calls us to. We need to do both. So I said a moment ago, when we come to this now, we're going to think for a second about a couple of postures that the cross of Jesus Christ calls us to. One of self-denial and one of self-affirmation. First of all, the cross of Jesus Christ is a call to self-denial. Jesus told us that it was. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, folks, we're more than one character in this Easter story. What do I mean by that? Well, the way we tell the Easter story, it's as if we're only ever Barabbas, aren't we? Barabbas is the guy who's guilty, the guy who deserves to die, but because of Jesus, he walks free and Jesus dies in his place. We see ourselves mostly as Barabbas. And that's brilliant because it's true. We are, in that sense, very much like Barabbas. But we're also like another character. Nigel read about him a moment ago. The guy who was forced to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not just Barabbas. We're Simon of Cyrene. You see, Jesus calls us to lift a cross and to carry it along with him. Crucifixion was very common right throughout the Roman Empire. Israel was no exception. Every rebel who was condemned was forced to carry either their cross or just its crossbar, the patibulum, the big crossbeam, on their shoulders to the place where they were going to be executed. So anybody hearing Jesus teach, when they heard him say, take up your cross, would know what he meant. He meant, put yourself in the shoes of a person who's going to their death, a condemned man on his way to execution. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, martyr under the Nazis, he famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When you hear someone talking about their, their, their difficult husband or their irritable wife, and then they talk about, oh, sure, each one of us has our cross to bear, they haven't got it. That's not what Jesus meant. To bear our cross means nothing less than to put ourself to death. I was reading John Stott this week, and he gave me an image that it was hard to, to wriggle away from. He suggests that what we need to have in our minds is taking an actual hammer and nails and to fasten our slippery fallen nature to the cross and thus do it to death. So that through this death we may live in fellowship with God. That's what it means to take up our cross. That's what we've been talking about in Colossians when we've been saying that we've died to Christ, died with Christ in a culture of narcissism, the cross of Jesus Christ invites us to humility. Folks, you might get the impression from what I've said so far that, that God, about self-denial, that God somehow is against us, that Jesus doesn't have a lot of time for human beings. But that would be to ignore, to ignore the whole story of Scripture. Alongside Jesus' explicit call to self-denial, there's, there's always an implicit call to self-affirmation. Jesus loved people. Just read the Gospels and you'll see it. Loved them. He thought they were great. He talked about it in his teaching. He talked about how God valued them. He said, listen, God values even a wee tiny bird. How much more do you think he thinks of you? Jesus didn't just affirm people in his teaching. He demonstrated it in his, in his attitude towards them. Read the Gospels. Everywhere he goes, he, he looks out for the vulnerable, the, the broken, the sick, the dying, the, the neglected, the, the, the sideshow, and he, he brings them in. He loved people. But the greatest way in which Jesus ever showed his love it wasn't in his teaching or his general attitude. It was, it was Good Friday. It's when he went to the cross for us. It's that cross of Christ again. Archbishop William Temple, he once put it like this, my worth is what I am worth to God and that is a marvelous great deal for Christ died for me. In a narcissistic culture, a person before the cross finds themselves humble. In a depressive culture, a person before the cross finds themselves happy. Lifted up by the love of God for us. Folks, we've seen how our culture will lead us into either too low a self-image or or too grand a one. And we've seen how the cross of Jesus Christ is the antidote to all of this. A place where we can find our true identity, where we can exercise appropriate self-affirmation and self-denial, where we find ourselves happy and humble. The cross teaches me both. On the one hand, it's a measure of my value. 
Christ loved me enough to die for me, and that makes me happy. On the other hand, it, it's a measure of, it's, it's a model of God's self-giving that becomes a, a model for my self-denial. I must take myself and nail it to a cross, see it killed off. This makes me humble. John Stott summarizes this dual nature of the cross like this. He says, standing before the cross, we get to see simultaneously our worth and our unworthiness, since we perceive both the greatness of his love in dying for us and the greatness of our sin in causing him to die. Folks, we're talking here this evening about the cross of Jesus Christ and what kind of people we would become if we could only live with our gaze on that cross. Maybe the best way to finish is to think for a few moments about a community that really tried to do that, that tried self-consciously and deliberately to live under the cross of Jesus Christ. In 1772, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf welcomed some Christian refugees from Moravia and from Bohemia into his estate in Saxony in, in modern-day Germany. And he helped them form a Christian community there under the name Herrenhut, which means the Lord's Watch. For the Moravians, their whole faith was focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. They defined a Christian as a person with an inseparable friendship with the lamb, the slaughtered lamb. Their Latin inscription carries uh, this, this, their seal, sorry, carries this Latin inscription. Our lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. Zinzendorf insisted that the, the lamb, the slain lamb, was the only foundation on which their whole community was built. This focus on the cross of Jesus gave them a, a beautifully balanced life. Because they were living before the cross, they had a, a really genuine humility and, and penitence. But they had also a very strong assurance of their salvation and a quiet confidence in God. We are the Savior's happy people, Zinzendorf said. See that? Living around the cross made them happy, and humble. Don't know if you've ever heard of these guys. They turned the world of their day on its head. It was the joy and the fearlessness of the, the Moravians on a ship that he saw one time, a ship sailing and sinking in an Atlantic storm. God used it to, to convict John Wesley of his sin. And that moment on that ship with those Moravians became an important part of his journey towards salvation. The Moravians inspired Wesley to start the Methodist movement in England, a movement which would change the, the nature of, of Christian faith in the whole of the British Isles. Listen to this. In the space of four years, in the 1930s, they started missionary enterprises. Where did they start them? In the Caribbean, in Greenland, in Lapland, North and South America, South Africa. A few years later, they'd begun missionary work in Labrador, among the Australian Aboriginals, and on the Tibetan border. 
Tell them about the Lamb of God. Zinzendorf urged his missionaries, until you can tell them no more. It's this healthy emphasis on the cross of Jesus Christ. This healthy emphasis in the Moravians, I think you could probably trace it back to Zinzendorf himself and his conversion. He was a young man of 19. He he was from a wealthy family, so he'd been sent to do his, his European tour to finish his education. And he found himself one day in an art gallery in Dusseldorf. And he was standing before Fetty's Ecce Homo, a painting in which Jesus is portrayed wearing a crown of thorns. And there's an inscription under the painting. It says simply this, All this I did for thee. What doest thou for me? That was Zinzendorf's moment. That was him standing under the cross of Jesus Christ. He committed himself from that day on always to live under the cross, to serve the Lamb who'd given his life for him. He never went back on that commitment. He and his community for hundreds of years after him were concerned only ever for the glory of God. Zinzendorf and his Moravians, happy and humble, living under the cross. Could we be happy in this depressive culture? Could we possibly be humble in this culture of narcissism? Here's the way. Here's how we do it. We come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we determine that we will live there from this day on. Let us pray.